Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template... With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, have you seen the movie The Fablemans? Well, in many ways, my guest has the same childhood story, obsessed with making films, hasn't stopped since, and is really a uniquely gifted storyteller and a very generous human. Welcome director, filmmaker, storyteller, Mike Canzanero to the podcast. A-OK. My guest today is Michael Canzanero. Michael, or Mike, as his friends call him, is an award-winning writer-director working out of his film studio, working out of his film studio, MCM Creative, in Midtown Manhattan. He was born in the Bronx, raised on the East End of Long Island, and he grew up obsessed with making movies with his cousin Marco Ricci. As a student at Notre Dame, he worked as a PA on the film Rudy. Then he went to grad school for film at NYU. But it was his apprenticeship with maverick indie filmmaker Abel Ferrara that he credits as the formative piece in learning to make his own highly personal independent films. His thesis film was awarded the Princess Grace Award for the nation's best student film ever. He has since gone on to make many films and documentaries. Some of the titles include The Marconi Brothers, Don Peyote, Making the Day, Shelter Island. There are too many to mention here. Google him. But I'm so honored to have Mike on the podcast today. Hello, Mike. Nice to meet you, Alana. (laughs) All right. Now, (laughs) we've buried the lead in a way. So the whole reason this podcast exists, honestly, is because of you. Well, it's because of you, but it's I because thought. because of us. <laughs> do you remember? I wonder if yeah. our stories match. Like, do you remember, remember where, where we were? were? Yeah. Okay, tell yeah. me your version. We were at some party walking out the back door because I think one of us was drunk and it was time to go home or yeah, something. Yeah, I think that was you. And I was preaching the gospel of podcast to you, and I was, you should definitely have a podcast. Yeah. And it and that was on your mind because at the time you were in a different location, your production company, and someone there was starting a, a podcast business. Yeah. And so you were highly aware and kind of locked into the world of podcasting. Well, we're just excited about what a great way to get content out there and have someone like you 
I just had a feeling was go- you're such a fun person to talk to. I was like, she would be the best podcast. And so for me, because listeners, the person who was drunk going out the back door was Mike. I was like, is he going to remember tomorrow that he had this whole like epiphany about the future of my career? But what made me happy is that when you were sober, you still thought it was a really good idea. So thank you for yes, that. And I still do. And you and still do. And the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Look at how many, how many have you done? I think I think published there's like 330 and by the wow. time you wow. know you're in a queue now yeah. Yeah, um yeah. you know amazing three, it's a lot and it's going into its sixth year I think yeah. and um and those were the glory years with your po- the beginning days of your podcasts all the celebs that would come into pro media and we would yeah. get the photo op with them it was <laughs> it's so a lot fun. of fun yes. I know well that was all I had to thank you with I yeah. was like I don't well, have I a appreciate dollar, it. but, but you know here's Matthew Broderick right exactly. exactly it was great it was thrilling and it was thrilling for me to get to share all these people that I love um, with people all over the world because that's what's insane about podcasts. And now you have the biggest star of all. I do. And that brings me to you <laughs> because I feel like what I've learned is that whether I'm talking to Edie Falco or whether I'm talking to you, everyone who makes art has a unique story about what brought them um, to this moment in their life where they decided this isn't just something fun I do with my cousin during the summer on a family vacation, this is something I want to do with my whole life, which is mm-hmm. your story. And I feel like, obviously, you guys know, we know each other. Mike's a great friend of mine. I really feel like he's the brother I always wanted. And his wife is one of my best friends. And I love his entire extended family. And I'm so personally proud of you and the aesthetic that you bring to every project that you have. So. I know you were like a kid who loved Star Wars, like a million other kids, and mm. George Lucas. I mean, you grew up at Did that time. Did you see time. the Fable Men's, by the way? Um, I feel like I'm waiting to see the Canzanero Men's because I that feel was, like that was my childhood, basically running around the backyard with Super 8 cameras and making movies. Like, how did you have a Super 8? camera like literally how did you even have one to put in your hands my father's best friend uh was a the video teacher of the middle school my dad was the school psychologist and his best friend bob kaplan was a jewish guy looked just like steven spielberg and they he's he had the super eight cameras and he started me out very young and we were we were given the keys to the castle from an early age because of that connection and so you and your cousin I mean, and you brother, have a MC, long, MCM, a big extended family. Sure, but MCM, my company to this day, is Mike, Chris, and Marco. So Chris was the reluctant third wheel that Your did brother. had no. He's like, what are you guys doing? Why don't we play baseball, Wait, stickball? Why doctor? do we have to keep making? Yes, yeah. yeah. He's like, why do we keep making movies? Like, don't we do normal? Can we go to the beach? You're like, go- I want to save lives, and you're like, I am saving <laughs> lives, Chris. I really am through he, my art, as yeah. he literally saved lives yes, with his does. medicine. Um, okay, so you have this camera, and what? First of all, you have to develop film yeah. at that time. Would you like send it away yeah, and then you, like, oh, when is it coming? And, and we the can most see it? magical thing, and they kind of captured it in the Fablemans, that when you threaded up the Super 8 projector and that light would put go through the celluloid and that magical thing of what you. I mean, it's for young people, it's hard to imagine a time when you couldn't get the instant gratification yeah. of a. I shot it, now I look at it. You waited a week and then you'd get, oh my God, it was all out of focus. There was a hair in the gate. Like things like that. So it was, I mean, it was super exciting. My my earliest memory of playing a movie I made for like my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, everyone gathered around and we had done the, there wasn't sound on the Super 8 cameras back then. So we had a tape recorder. So we were doing the soundtrack. We'd play back the, the Star Wars, we made a movie with Star Wars action figures. Okay. And then we did like a live sound play alongside of it. But of course, it doesn't run in sync. <laughs> and I, I'm playing back in front of all the extended family, the, the first big movie we've, we spent the whole summer making. And within like 30 seconds, it's way out of sync. And everyone starts laughing hysterically because like I'm doing Yoda's voice, but it's Princess Leia on the screen. And I start bawling, crying because the big premiere has gone really sour. And they all thought it was... A riot, and I'm like, no, that's not what I wanted this to go like. I wanted them to all think, get sucked into the story, like Star Wars, and you, like my South first heartbreak. Southwest, you're like, wait, yeah. this isn't how I want it. Stop. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is the print Stop isn't the print. good. Yes. Um, what were so you're making like you're using action figures and you're filming them? I'm, and I'm only a filmmaker because of Star Wars. Like okay. I saw that at whatever age, and I was in the middle of the movie and said to myself, "Oh, I don't know what this is, but I want to be make these things for that, and I just want to be in this movie forever." And I was like, and that that was like you have a moment I, in the middle of Star Wars somewhere. I had a 
very much a clear thing like this is what you're going to do the rest of your life you're going to make these things because there's nothing cooler than star wars right now how old are you at the time i guess it's i'm i guess it's like 78 maybe because i was seven okay so yeah. you're really little yeah, yeah but yeah. you just have this like but was making movies by the third grade a pretty like obsessively by third grade. And are, like, you gathering up kids in the neighborhood? Yeah. Or, yeah, oh, yeah. You're that yeah, guy. Yeah, definitely. The neighborhood. Like, every kid in the neighborhood acted in one of my movies at one point. All through high school. I mean, the, every every kid in my high school probably acted in one of the high school movies. And you're writing them? Writing with my cousin Marco. Like, that collaboration is really... All the way through my first feature, Marco and I were attached at the hip. Even though we didn't go to the same college, we were still collaborating remotely. And So when it's time to go to college... Does Notre Dame have a film program? It did. That was more my dad's dream. I think he dropped out of the priesthood and he felt like he owed God four kids at Notre Dame or something like that did was the deal. Did they want you to go into the priesthood or they My just dad wanted, wanted me to, to, to be a doctor, so that's okay. what my younger brother Chris ended up taking that mantle on and I I had my grandmother behind his back, but she had seniority say, "Do do what you love. Do what oh, you love." She would great. whisper, "Don't don't listen to your dad. You do what you love." Which is interesting because your dad's a very creative person also. Yeah, but he was a was a doctor for 50 years and then in his retirement has been writing books and right. all along had that passion. But we grew up much more practical. Like you're an immigrant kid. Like Yeah, you have to support you know, your family. Be a doctor and make a living. Right. So when you're at school, I remember I had the great privilege of visiting that university with you mm-hmm. for, for a project we did together. And... And Rudy, the film Rudy, which is a huge movie, even yeah. if you haven't gone to that school. Well, I was ready to quit Notre Dame at that point. And? I said to my dad, I want to go to USC. This is, I know, I want to do film. I'm at the wrong school. There's there's like five kids here doing film. Right. And he said, just, just hang in there. And then like right as I'm about to tell him I'm transferring, there's the next day's headline in the school paper is Hollywood comes to Notre Dame. And I was like, oh, damn. Oh, there so, is a God. Yeah. There so is a God. So I got a I job on Rudy. I got a job on Rudy. All right. Tell me about that. Because for you, now you're – is this the first time – I mean, you grew up – you were born in the Bronx, as I mentioned in yeah. your bio read. And then you, you really grew up. Long. Do you remember the Bronx at all, or were you teeny Well, tiny? only because my cousin Marco was a Bronx kid, okay. and my grandparents lived for many years in the Bronx. So I was back and forth Long Island to the Bronx. But your memory of growing up is definitely suburban. Yeah, I thought yeah, I thought New York City was co-op city. Like, we'd be driving by <laughs> the co-op city, and I'd been hearing, oh, there's a yeah. the city, the city. And I saw, like, 20 big skyscrapers, and I thought that must be the city. I never really realized the other side of the, the Throgs Neck Bridge over there. It's like you're not even actually in Manhattan. No, yet. I had no idea there was a Manhattan. I just I thought the Bronx and Co-op City was the city. Okay, so had you had any, like, visual or relationship to an actual film set? Would, did anything ever film in your neighborhood? I'd been had on the set of the Cosby one? Show in, like, high school. Like, How I got did to that, see that happen? I, you were dating Lisa Bonet. Yeah. <laughs> Oh wait, that. that was your little known fact. Yeah, yeah. No, how did you get to be on? That? I mean, it was we had a very artistic school because we had a nuclear power plant in the hometown, so they paid the taxes, and so our school was like a private school. So we had a great my my high school video department was better than my college's video department. It was like multi camera switchers and green screen walls, and so yeah, I think we took insane like field trips and stuff like that so they, one day they just packed us all up to the museum of the moving image and to go see the cosby show and so you're watching a taping of it yeah all right yeah. so other than that like no this is, I, let, rudy is your first time. yes i'm not i was not born into any connections the only connection i had is that guy bob kaplan had a childhood friend named richard walter who taught screenwriting at usc and is a, a very well-known screenwriting professor and he gave me a couple of tips of advice when i was in gra- in, in undergrad he like took your call Yes, like took one my call. call and yeah, it was like, all yeah, right, I'll I'll give this yeah, boy yeah, some yeah. some pointers. So that's huge, right? So now the thing that you love, other than like watching a taping of the Cosby mm-hmm. Show, which is which is not the thing that you were invested in mm-hmm. your entire life, right. is coming to your home, yeah. your school, yeah. and you get a job. And like, what are you actually doing on the set of Rudy? Well, I was PA on some shoots, but it was freezing cold at Notre Dame. They were shooting in the winter. So it wasn't a fun job being a PA on that. And they had me, you know, locking up student traffic and stuff for a few days. But my cool job was they sent me to Chicago to learn how to thread 35 millimeter projectors. So I got trained for a union projectionist position. They didn't report it. Who's they? uh, The the production 
hired a, they had to hire a certain number of Notre Dame students as part of the deal to shoot there. Got it. And they got me to be the Daly's projectionist at the Marriott Hotel where all the cast and crew were standing. So every night I would get the dailies from the day before and I would put them, thread them up on this giant projector. And they were like, by the way, that bulb is nuclear. If it opens up, you'll die. So, You're like, there's a nuclear yeah, bulb then where yeah, I grew pretty, up. You, they, I'm the right guy they, for they this. Were like, there was like a little thing where they slipped in. Like, by the way, if you open this latch here, you'll, you'll vaporize in like two seconds. So don't open that. I was like, all right. Yeah, I won't. And I had been the dailies, uh, the movie projectionist at the Notre Dame movie theater as well. So I knew a little something about movie projectors at yeah. that point. So it wasn't so foreign to me. But I got to see every frame of footage that they shot on campus for Rudy. And that was, um, that you can't, if you think about it, like that's an amazing learning experience yeah. to see like coverage. And you know, my, I think I've told you the story before, but I was still a bit of a know-it-all filmmaker. And I was doing watching 18. the scene where yeah. Sean Astin gets accepted to the university. Did you ever, did I ever tell you this? And Even if you did, Cut all Many this out. No, I'm saying no one listening right, is. I, I just, I know, I'd hate to re be repetitive. Um, no, but you've never been on this podcast before. True, it's really true, okay. true. Uh, so here, this is a great example of like the folly of youth. But I was, we were, I was projecting the scene where Sean Aston gets his acceptance letter to Notre Dame. And in take one, he like opens the envelope and he reads the letter and it's a, he plays it really subtle and it's in his eyes and it pushes up and it's beautiful. Take two, he's like a little bit bigger and the performance gets a little bit more like emotional. And then by like take seven, he's like opening the letter and like bawling, like blubbering. And it's so cheesy. And I say to my buddy John in the booth with me, what the hell is this director doing? He was he was so he must be in, this he director must be an ins yeah. he's directing him so badly. It was so much better. Like what could he want from Sean Astin? Like he right. gave it in the first take, and uh, they heard me through the wall. And the editor after the screening storms into the booth. He goes, "You freaking asshole! You have no idea what you're talking about. The director's right behind that wall. Here's everything you're saying." He goes, "And for the record, Sean is giving me a bracketed performance so that in the editing room I can decide." where we want to be emotionally for that moment, like what feels right. So Sean was so in control of his instrument right. as an actor, right. he's bracketing his performance. I'd never heard of bracket. I thought I knew it all, and then I'm like, bracketing performance? What oh, does shit. that mean? So that was what when I decided I better go to NYU film yes. school and learn filmmaking. Cause I, I don't I, know. I, I'm an actress. I don't know what bracketing a performance means. Yeah. That's, a, well, that's new terminology. So what does that literally mean? It, it means you give gauges of your like emotional intensity in a reaction shot, right? So the editor has a, we do it in photography, we bracket our exposure up and down, underexposed all the way to overexposed. So in post we can decide a couple things. So imagine an actor doing something similar, a pivotal moment. He's giving that editor a choice of what, what will feel right. right with the music and everything else. Oh, we want a little bit more tears from Sean. I'll go to the next take. So I learned that and I also was like humbled and, and like, I got my first taste of Hollywood yes. asshole, like, too, yeah. because the guy screamed at me. Like, I haven't been screamed at since, like, my dad screamed at me as a kid there. And I was like, oh, shit. Should but we they talk didn't, about they didn't that? Fire Should me. we go into your childhood? Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> That's another therapy session. Okay. Yeah. We'll do that next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and your dad. That's uh -huh. that's the podcast. Mm -hmm, In fact, mm -hmm. that podcast is you and your dad. Yes. You don't even need me for that. No. <laughs> so you... Was it hard to get into NYU film school, grad school? I don't know if it was hard. There was only 50 of us that were accepted. But it's I a had tiny a, class. Yes. And I, I feel, and I got a scholarship there. So I must have looked pretty good to them. I think Notre Dame didn't hurt. But I had a great professor there named Jill Godmiller, who was sort of a legendary indie filmmaker. And huh. she thought I was pretty good. So she wrote me a really nice letter. So that definitely helped. And then I remember my interview at NYU. Yeah. They asked me who my favorite filmmaker was, and I guess the right answer was Stanley Kubrick. They were impressed that I liked Kubrick. So. Um, my little known fact about Mike is that when I first met him, uh, I didn't know him well, but I lived in a in a neighborhood in Brooklyn where everyone had the same Subaru. It was like the signature car, and the way I knew it was Mike's is that his bumper sticker said "Got Kubrick" on it. Playing on the Got Milk campaign, <laughs> for some reason I thought that was a... You thought it was hilarious. And I couldn't believe when you when that car was driven into the ground and you finally got a new one, I was like, wait, you're not going to transfer the... How will I know which new Subaru right. is yours? Yeah. Um, anyway, you're. I appreciate that. When yeah. you go in, you go in hard. Yeah. But Scorsese had gone to that film school. 
that and I did get into USC as well. So yeah. I got to choose, but I did I had a little soul searching. I was like, I know Spielberg and Lucas were why I, and they're California to me and they're why I got into it, but at that age I'd had enough of a sense that I felt more aligned with the indie spirit and New York felt like home. And I, I, I was looking at Jim Jarmusch and all the great indie right. directors. And so the kind of story of my career is like, I was bait and switch thinking there was a living to be made as an indie filmmaker in New York. Cause obviously Jim Jarmusch is doing it and Spike yeah. Lee's doing it. And then by the time I got out, they were, it was sort of like, well, you can't make a living doing indie film actually. So when did you, when did you graduate? So that's the... Grad Film 98. So what are like the blockbusters and what are the big indies that around then? That was the peak then? of it. Yeah. That was like post, like Brothers McMullen was happening then and all right. those big little, in, you know, these indies that were winning Sundance and blowing up people like Ed Burns overnight and Kevin Smith. And I was like, I can make clerks. Like that wasn't scaring me. And I was like, I'm going to kick some ass when I get out of here. Yeah. And, and you uh, did. No, I didn't. But my classmates did, John Hamburg, Brett Morgan, Malcolm Lee, Steve McQueen, Morgan Freeman, they all, Steve McQueen and Morgan Freeman were- Different Steve McQueen's Steve and McQueen Morgan Freeman. Steve McQueen and Morgan Freeman were both classmates. Of the 50, we had two with those names that were not the original right. people. No, of but names. I, but you're winning awards. I mean, I wasn't no, being sarcastic. Yeah. I feel like, yes, those guys have gone on to do what they went on to do. Yeah. You, as we'll tell the story, have gone on to- to do what you've wanted to do, which is remain in control mm. of your projects and build community. Because the thing that I really think about since I've known you, you know, Mike and I really met because our kids were in school together and then our families kind of fell in love with each other and then we've just been able to really meet in in artistic spaces as well. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing that I've always thought about you, I mean, you know, I had the gift of starting out working with Robert Altman and working on that set, mm -hmm. I remember someone saying to me, like, this is not normal. Mm -hmm. This idea of community, mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. best idea wins. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Everyone, yeah. is, he records everyone at the same yeah, time, yeah, so yeah, say yeah. the funniest thing, oh, and then yeah, you're, right? Yeah. It was such a collaborative, democratic, mm -hmm. hilarious, mm -hmm. crazy mm -hmm. environment. And, and I feel like, you know, and I remember at that time in my life, I'm learning about Cassavetes and becoming obsessed with, you know, his mm -hmm, films and, mm -hmm. and, and creating ensembles mm -hmm. of people who work together over and over again. And through that, that kind of theater mentality mm -hmm. comes incredible storytelling. And I feel like the thing that I've always admired so much about you is that you have always had this... Um, can-do spirit, this I've got a barn, let's put on a show, mm. whether we have a dollar or a million dollars, we can make we can make the thing. And and somehow the spirit of what you and your cousin and brother did in the backyard when you were little at a much more elegant, evolved level is still, you gather people up and you get them excited about a story. And, and Dan Fogler, Don Fogler, Dan Fogler. Dan. Wait, who's the musician? Don? Don Fogelman. <laughs> when you and Don Fogelman yeah, started working yeah, yeah, together, yeah. it was amazing. So early on, your first movie, yeah. after you win an award, you're, well, you're me, getting recognition. Let me tell you two quick things. Yes. One is that can-do thing. That comes out of NYU had all these Eastern European teachers that huh. had like grown up under communist rule and tried to make movies in the most oppressive things ever. And these like like 75 year old like guys that were Milosh Foreman's like peers were like, are you kidding me? Just no excuse cinema, just go, buy camera, make movie. What is your problem? I don't know, there's no excuse. Right, so, there's like, nothing no, in your way. Yeah, like if no one is standing like you're, with a gun. Like, exactly, yeah, so like now is the, t like you don't know how lucky you are to be huh. able to just go out and make a movie. So there's no excuse not to make a movie anymore. So yeah. that's a good thing to like drill in your head that I mean, Back then, the video was a little weak, but they had a point. And I, we all ran out and bought our own cameras and just started shooting all the time in the 90s like that. Digital cinema changed the threshold to get a movie made. So I had that in my brain. And then I also had seen this French documentary about John Cassavetes where he was touring people through his home where he was making one of his great masterpieces. And, he was, and I was like, I don't know exactly all this guy's work, but I like his feeling of like fuck Hollywood yeah I'm gonna do it my way I don't I have everything I need right here and he would like take it through he's like here's my lighting and here's my camera and here's my DP having breakfast and I go upstairs and checks in on the end and I was like oh and so kind of MCM 
the studio, this 10,000 square foot like playground I have now is based on that Cassavetes doc. I was like, that's what you need. You make your own little machine and you make your own films. Yeah. So that early on became like a, you know, a moonshot for me is can I make my own little movie studio company and not need, because I, I wasted so many years trying to get my first movie made out in Hollywood and running around with a strict script with no connections, trying to get a million dollars from them. Seven years later, I finally got the money from family and friends because Hollywood had no interest. Right. And you made it. And we made it, but I did realize, like, well, you know, like, I, that just feels like seven years I'd love to get back. Yeah. I wish I'd made seven films in those seven years. Yeah. Well, you've made up for it in Try. many ways. Um, and that's when you met Dan Fogelman. <laughs> Dan Fogelman. <laughs> and Brendan And I'm still, I'm Frazier. about to do another film with Dan. We just got off the phone yesterday. We're doing our sixth film together this winter. So Marconi Brothers, and it's yeah. not Brendan Fraser, it's Brendan Sexton. Yeah, um, yeah. and Zoe Lister-Jones's first film. Also, yeah. also an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. actress. Um, that movie is A, hilarious, and B, very much the story of, loosely based on your story of yeah. being willing to be a wedding yeah. videographer to make ends right, meet. Right, because I got out of NYU with huge loans. I think I had $100,000 of debt. And first I was temping in the World Trade Center, and I quit in April of 2001 and bought an editing system, which is crazy. Two of yeah. my coworkers died in 9-11. Yeah. And then I was like, that's a sign. Don't like just go for the easy money. Like Stay in the business. So yeah. and then I And then I, a professor at NYU had a a former AC that had a wedding video company. I learned how to shoot wedding videos, and I found out I could make three grand in a weekend, and I could spend the rest of the week writing. And that's what Mark and I did for like five years. We were wedding video guys that would work weekends on that, and then write our script the rest of the week. And how and did you cast that movie? Mary Clay Bolin, the great Mary Clay. You just interviewed her, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Now she's part of the MCM family, but she she was fantastic. But Dan and I already had he'd already acted in a short that I did called Hyper that played at the centerpiece of the New York Film Festival, opened for P.T. Anderson. So that was my first real success outside of film school. Was that little short did like fifty festivals and did very well. So Dan and I were in the the green the trenches room. And uh, no, the no, we were in the green room of it. the New York Film Festival with Tom Petty, Julia Roberts, and uh, Adam Sandler and P.T. Anderson and, they, and Sony tried to kick us out and the New York Film Festival said no they have the short and they deserve to be here more than all your you know fancy pants people I love that so I always have a sweet spot in my heart for the New York Film Festival standing up for me and yeah and Dan believing Fogler. that everyone is equal yeah 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 in, yeah in the world of film yeah um, yeah I mean I feel like Don Peyote uh, this most recent movie Making the Day that that Dan is in. What are the other movies that you guys we did We did one together? called Hysterical Psycho. I think Aaron was like eight months pregnant and I went off to a log cabin and shot a horror film with Dan in like two weeks. So that was not a, that's not a fond memory yeah. for my wife, but yeah. that was a fun one. And that had a cast, Lennon Parham, Kelly Hutchinson, uh, Noah Bean, like all of the young actors and that went on to amazing things as well. But Dan, Dan's always been like my the Scorsese, did not that we're that level, but I, he's always been my brother and uh, like De Niro, Scorsese, I was like, he's my guy. Yeah. And the, from the minute I met him, he's like, he's got that Robin Williams kind of genius brain. And I've always, I've loved collaborating with them. And we have similar family structures. Like we each have a, a brother that we have a intense relationship. And he has a father that's also a doctor. And he has a mother that's also kind of pretty, pretty excitable, let's say. And so I think we have, we come from a similar place. So we've, you get all, each we've other. We, we get each other. Yeah. How did you learn? I don't know. I mean, school, you can learn theoretically how to do certain things. But how did you learn to kind of talk to actors and like the language of, you know, when you talk about mm-hmm. hearkening back to Sean, you know, the the Rudy story, mm-hmm. right? And how the, the kind of cali- calibration yeah. of takes that he did. What's your relationship to working with actors and how did you develop a language? Um, I was... Uh, very befuddled by it in grad school and thinking you had to like understand method and get give them backstory. Their and, process. And then I did take an acting class and I realized, oh man, you can over talk an actor. Uh-huh. And I, I learned then quickly like less was more and Spielberg's mantra of 90% of directing is casting. I think that's definitely true. Uh, so I think 
part of my job is to making them feel relaxed. And so that's why so much of like the way I'm doing things now, it's really about, hey, we may not even use this. Let's just shoot something. And, and because that attitude helps my actors like feel like, oh, well, we can. And we're improving and play, like the feeling of getting them to play. I think there was a book by William Balk on directing that said like basically, you know, you're much more creative when you're relaxed. When you're tense, you're not creative. So if your goal as a director is to get your actor to be creative and do their best work, they gotta be relaxed. So there's never any screaming or yelling or making anyone on set. If anyone changes that mood on one of my sets, it sucks. I don't yeah. want that. So I try to make it all feel, I don't even have an, I didn't have an AD on making the day because I don't want someone telling us we have 30 minutes to get the shot. Yeah. We're here until we get it and get it good and that's why it becomes fun again. Yeah. So I kind of have, I went through a phase where I was trying to do it the Hollywood way and then I realized, no, I, I really what I live for is to go back to those summers with my cousin making movies. So when I'm on a set, if I'm in that playful mindset, that's where, and I actually found out that was my better best work. Yeah. Was to be in the state of play on set, which is hard when there's all these millions of dollars at. And people with suits pacing up and down, yeah. you know, in, so in Video I no, Village. I don't even want that anymore. Right. So it's interesting, like you say, like, yeah, I did start off wanting to be Spielberg doing $100 million films, but I got to a point now where it's like, the less people on set, the better. Let's make it really small, little guerrilla team and have fun and not have an AD and not have so much financial risk. At, at, and, and I think we'll do better work that way. Well, you've also, I mean, you, you can tell your story way better than I can, but my impression in knowing you, I mean, Going on 15 years now, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I first met you, I feel like there were some side hustles going on to pay the bills and so that you could, and I don't mean hustle in a, in a negative way, I just mean businesses mm -hmm. that you were figuring out, no longer wedding shooting mm -hmm. so much, mm -hmm. but like, oh, I have all this equipment. Mm -hmm. I can use all this equipment for what I do, but also I can rent it out yeah. to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was like slowly this business building, like yeah. I have a truck, I can let other people use it. Right. So can you sort of describe how you figured out this balance of like, I can still make my art and do what I love to do, and I can also make money not yeah. doing the thing right, I love right, to do, right, right. and actually maybe that'll also turn out to be something you love, and I think it is. Mm -hmm. So kind of tell the story of how, I mean, I think for people listening, everyone feels like, oh, there's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, I'm not successful because at this age, I haven't yeah. made the film that has right, sort of, right, and right. I feel like there's so many ways to go about it. What was your way? Yeah, I mean, I guess it started slowly with it, but it didn't, I mean, I didn't really hit my stride till my 40s because yeah. I was really figuring, I had little kids and I was looking at that rent bill every month and stressing of like, how can I make a movie and pay the bills and have two little kids that are that are really, you know, they're kids. They, they also take time. So, uh, but as they got a little older, I started basically investing in myself. Like I, instead of taking the money and maybe spoiling my wife, which maybe she would have preferred that I do, I would buy the camera, and then the next time I'd buy the light, and the next time so I'd buy the So every time you had money coming in, I had it went extra, right back into It went in the equipment. business, yeah, I mean, I did. But I, it wasn't even clearly a business yet, was it? Were you, did you understand what it was going to I be? I wish I'd gone to business school, not film school half the time, because yeah. man, I'm now I'm such a businessman. Like, mm -hmm. I've got 20 employees, and mm -hmm. like, I have to deal, I just had like a, a financial summit with my bookkeeping team for an entire weekend I was like this is we're talking about all this heavy duty financial stuff but I guess I have a knack for it to some degree I feel like I, I, if running a business isn't that different than directing a movie at the end of the day you have employees there's a lot of psychology w when you're dealing with your crew and your actors and there's right. a lot of psychology when you're dealing with your team like like making sure they have what they need to do their job and making sure checking their their temperature and right. making sure things are moving forward and we're being you know as productive as possible so th there is it's not that far of a stretch from from director to business owner it's still you're still like and I'm, I'm the oldest of 13 cousins the oldest of four siblings so I'm kind of used to being in charge with that and learning I've learned how to do that as a kid how to like lead a, a little guerrilla team yeah. so I, that was in my my early childhood like experiences of like putting on my 13 cousins on a Christmas Eve like production. So I'm like kind of used to that role. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. All right. So when did you understand that the stuff that you use, A, you have this camera right out of school, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're shooting 
wedding videos to make money, and we'll talk about that later. I don't know if that's your little known fact <laughs> no. or how you had your entire personal life happen because you were shooting wedding videos. Um, oh. But that was my little known fact. <laughs> so we will we will right. we we will go back to that. Um, you're saying that the money that you made shooting wedding, wedding no, videos well, is how you... No, let's just say that how I, you... I evolved from wedding videography into more corporate video and then eventually television. So I did this crazy video. I don't even remember. Did you see the, the thing I did about the bowler in the 70s? The bowler? Jerry Calypso. Yes. So that was like a side, like little short project that I got a couple bucks. So I was always making films and uh, while I was hustling as well, I, would, oh, I couldn't help but be out there shooting something creative all the time. Right. And Don Peyote was happening during a grinding period. Right. So you're always, always writing I things, I must have done 20 things. shorts and written 15 scripts during a 10-year period of my 30s where a few of them got out there, but there was just a lot of shorts and a lot of uh, stillborn projects as well. And one of them was this thing I did about a bowler in the 70s that we treated like archival. It's kind of, I don't want to say that Documentary Now stole the idea, but I know Lorne Michaels saw it and loved it at his Christmas party. And like two years later, you have Documentary Now. But just it, saying. They're just saying. Little known It's very fact. similar because yeah. it's pretty much the premise of Documentary Now. I created a, 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 a faux do, a mock doc in the style of Bob Dylan's Don't Look Back about a bowler though in the 70s. And for some reason that really clicked with Hollywood. And there was a moment there I thought, oh, this is my break. Because yeah. every agency in Hollywood was talking about this project and we had meetings and meetings and meetings in LA. And there were people literally like UTA ran to the airport to catch a meeting with us on our way back to New York. They were right. so excited about this. I was like, oh my God, this is it. Yeah. It didn't happen. We ended up being something at above average that they kind of squashed, I think, and they didn't. They kind of took it away from me, and they it was improv, and they all of a sudden needed it scripted and try to turn it into something else, and it lost its edginess, in my yeah. opinion. But it did get my foot in the door with some TV people that saw that I had some talent, and then I did spend the my let's say my mid thirties through my mid forties doing a lot of unscripted television, a lot of documentary camera work. So that after the wedding thing, I switched over. That's I was what doing you're a shooting. Lot of, Doing a lot of uh, yeah, television, a lot of uh, you know, A and E series, and 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 so I would get the show. I would get I would like direct an A and E pilot, and it would get green lit, and then I w they would say, well, who's going to produce? And I'd be like, I'll I'll provide the cameras, and yeah. then I was like, oh, by the way, I'll provide the lighting truck. Then I'd go out and buy a lighting truck and put it on the show and like rent it to the. So and then I bought four edit systems and I I got post too. So I just I just started as they needed. I realized I could jump in there and like provide. And you'd be like yeah, it's like an actor saying they know how to juggle and horseback ride and yeah. quickly learning yeah, it yeah. once they that's, get the job. That, that's what I did. And, right. and so going from maybe four, I was I think on an A and E series I was getting four grand a week to direct. Now I was making forty grand a week with all the rentals. Right. And that that was what the beginning of the business really started to get some some heat. And you liked it. I did like it. I love toys. Look at all the toys in this right, room. I right. love toys. So I'm saying it's like for some people, they're really um, myopic and sort of tunnel vision mm. about how I'm going to be creative this way. Yeah. And I feel like not to be Pollyanna about it. I know I know that your first love is making movies. Mm -hmm. And I know that you will always do that. And you are now also dealing with a lot of distractions from doing that mm -hmm. because you have this – um, you know, it's basically like a, a mini Steiner studio. studio. Yeah, it's, it's like crazy. Studio. We're at Silver Cup here yeah. in Manhattan. And and by the way, guys, if you're making a project, <laughs> it is literally like Silver Cup in Chelsea, New York City. And it's incredible. Um, and it has a, a podcast booth. And here we are. So it really has mm -hmm. like you have every yeah, level. Yeah, five of, stages yeah. and mixing and color and all the cameras and everything. It's incredible. Yeah. And that's you, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have because I've made this Swiss Army knife of things that. So when I want to make my next film, these guys can't believe it. I was talking to Anthony Ippolito, who I think is going to play the lead in my next film. He just played Al Pacino in The Offer. Yes. And I'm like, we don't have to ask Hollywood for money. We don't have to. We just we can. You and I can run out with my staff, and I've got the great cameras and right. lighting, and let's just go start making this movie tomorrow. He's. I think people are not used to the idea that you can green light yourself that quickly if you have all the means of production. So that was the goal I wanted to get to. Well, you took the barriers took, yeah. out. Technology allowed for some of that, right? Yeah. If I still had to process negative film and that, that kind of stuff we couldn't do. Right. 
But when digital came along and, is, and it looks so great today, I mean, yes, I, with the cameras I have in-house, I could go out and make movies that could end up in multiplexes in America. And my whole new mantra of organic filmmaking, which is movies that grow out of cast chemistry and we don't have a script to start making the day, didn't have a script. It started out of me loving Steve Randazzo and then figuring out what other actors would bounce well against him. And well, all right, so then Michael Barenbaum comes on board as an editor and then a writer and we're writing. Well, this really worked, Gal. Juliet Bennett and Steve have this great friction. Right, let's build another scene with them. So we, we're, we're letting it like a tree grow out. And then because we have an awareness of three-act structure and good screenwriting principles, we're right. able to steer it. So it's a hybrid doc thing, but it allowed me to make a movie for $100,000 because I wrote to things I had, I wrote to locations I owned, I wrote to actors like Speed Levitch and Dan Fogler that I could get, Yeah. and we'd write parts for them. So it's a little bit of letting your ego go, but letting the universe co-direct, and all of a sudden one day you find out, oh, my buddy just moved in this insane art gallery and I can shoot there next week, so let's write a scene for that. Can we talk about ego for a second? Because I, I, I feel, ego. do you? Because no. I feel like, the reason you've been able to kind of really elegantly move through all these lanes artistically, sorry you guys, I thought I heard a bear Ghost. coming in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a bear at all. Um, like, tell me about your ego. Tell me about your ego. <laughs> I don't think I have a big ego. You don't? No. I don't. A lot of people in this industry do, and I feel like, how would you, do you think, how would you describe your ego? I think I'm healthy mentally because I had a mother that seemed to think I was the sun and the moon. So I'm like, I got enough first from born my Italian Yeah, firstborn. Yeah. So I think whatever she did to me as a kid made me feel like, well, you're definitely worth something. So once that you have. That makes me so happy. So, can a mother have, for all of the negative things that we do, does that work in a positive way too? Oh my God. Like, I mean, that's, I credit her with everything. That and fighting the school bully in the seventh grade. My father, I give my father credit for that. So, those two things. All right. What's my that mother, story? like, giving me this unconditional love. Like, you can do anything. You're yeah, perfect. Th th I love that, you. That, that mom, right? Yeah. And, and even my younger siblings joke. Like, I'm still like the, because I was just being the first, you have a You're little bit of. You were the favorite son. But uh, no, I was being picked on. I was small in middle school, and I was being picked on really badly. And my father said to me after one wedgie night where I was at home crying, and my father said, and he's a psychologist, mind you, right. you go into school tomorrow, and when he walks into the locker room, I want you to punch him in the nose with everything you got. And if you don't, don't come home. You don't live here anymore. I won't, live with, I won't have a coward living in my house. That's the psychologist. And he was freaking brilliant because I, there was no way I would have stood up to that kid if I hadn't been threatened with No, you would have been hanging on the locker yeah, from your yeah, underwear. Yeah, I would have. So wow. I had to do it. And luckily, I punched him in the nose and I, wait, and I, did, wait, I did win. Hang on. First of all, this how this is not in any of your movies, I don't know. When the moment happens, so I don't know what time Jim was or what part of your day. First period. Okay, yeah. so you don't have to take the whole no, day. No, but I was sweating like unbelievable. I can remember going to the water fountain like a hundred times, waiting for this kid to show up and be like, "I got to punch him," and he's like a foot and a half taller than me. And do you tell your friends this is about to happen, or are you? Like, I did. I said him? to one my best friend, I said, "I got my father said if I don't punch him," and my friend says to me, "I would just." Just try to avoid him. That's what I do. And then he'll find somebody else. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah. maybe that would work. Yeah. But no, I was really threatened with homelessness. I mean, I was probably believe, a fake threat, him. but I believe my dad that, that you were, I wouldn't be able to come home. if I, And he knew because he was in the school. And so, <laughs> so I punched the kid. And apparently the gym teacher watched me get on top of him and pummel him and, and recruited me for the wrestling team, which is the sort of second arc of my – Middle school, high school years, I became one of the best. I became the captain of the wrestling team and, the, and all that. I, I was a, a star on the wrestling program. So I Because can't the gym teacher was like, after, I was like, you're pretty tough minute. for a little guy. You hit him and yeah, then yeah, you yeah, pinned yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you look at, like, are you, is that one of the proudest moments of your life? It's your the life? defining moment of my life. I think I don't fight that kid, and I, have, I don't have the courage to do, to take all the risks that I've taken. Uh -huh. Right. And there's been a lot of risk, Aaron. There's been a lot of risks in going into this business and going into this career. Just to make a film is a huge risk. It yeah. takes a lot of courage to go out and spend your life savings on a movie. Like, and yeah. I've done that multiple times. Yeah. It's kind of a remarkable thing to have a defining moment like that mm. and the sort of ways in which the combination 
of your mother and father's sort of psychology yeah, yeah. about how to parent. Um, I think about that so much as a parent, mm-hmm. and what will what will stick, what won't stick, what but will land in therapy. But you and Dom have that dynamic too, right? I mean, he's like the the taskmaster, and like he's uh, the great Santini. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, I'm yeah. like, honey, you are the sexiest great Santini. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. anyway, it. Well, that's a whole other conversation, right? But about, do you like, know about my weird two twenty nine thing? I've told you that that on on February 29th that first fight in my diary comes up on 229 leap year day. Okay. 4 years later I win the MVP of the county championship for my wrestling team and we win for the first time ever the Long Island championship for wrestling which is for a school with 600 kids we beat my wife's high school with 6000 kids. Insane Incredible. heroic highlight of my whole childhood is that wrestling yes. day. 4 years later I'm in Amsterdam where it's legal to buy weed and I smoke a super joint that has acid and I have my first acid trip, mind-blowing, crazy, 229 in my diary, newspaper clipping from the wrestling one. And the fourth one was in grad school. I had a nervous breakdown on 229 and I came up with my meaning of life. I so thought the meaning of life 229. was connected to the Amsterdam 229. But your meaning of the, life moment was connected Amsterdam to Amsterdam 229 was seeing infinity, okay. whatever that means. But that's what I you saw was it. like. I saw infinity. Yeah. I think that's in Don Peyote. <laughs> <laughs> A few times. Watch that film, guys. Yeah. So, uh, and the, But no, 229 in 96 was me realizing you got to be in the moment. That's it. I mean, that was the lesson, but it took three days to get So through. a lot of people, the be in the moment yeah. as a mantra and, 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 a, and, and to truly experience that takes a tremendous amount of work, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's meditation, whether it's discipline, yoga, dis- whatever yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. right? There's, there's all kinds of um, books written about it. Mm-hmm. Um, people who come to it the way you come to it. There's something so organic about your experience. It came to me in my father's. I heard the only time in my life I heard a voice inside my head, like that wasn't my own voice. You were not tripping. No, I was probably, though, chemically in a weird place. I had been editing a movie for like four weeks straight trying to solve this. So no sleep. No sleep, eating badly, and really in a weird mental place. And I had hallucinated my father's voice because I was so depressed, like almost suicidal. And he connected said, to the project or just where you were in your life. At I that was time? reading a lot of philosophy and like, you know, grad Dark school grad is a great time. Yeah, yeah. I think like and I was learning about Zen at the time and I painted my entire apartment red, like Karate Kid style, brush stroke by brush stroke, like trying to like do some Zen actors. So I was like pivot, like gearing a lot up going it. on. But that he screams at me or the voice in my head screams at me, this is it, this moment, because right? you know what it was? I was living in the future. I'm not going to be happy till I win the Oscar. Like right. I was still caught up right. in achievements and my father had always put a lot of pressure on me to be a success. And I'm like, I'm not going to be, I'm not, this movie I'm making sucks. Like what the fuck is going on right. with my life? Like, And I'm just so unhappy. Like I've put my heart and soul into this second year film at NYU and it's not turning out as good as I thought. I'm like, and I'm, and that's why I kept editing and thinking somehow I'm right. going to make it work in the edit room. I learned later I should have just abandoned it. Like it was, it was a try, Sometimes but it's I, not, I missed. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And I got so depressed, but and then I, but then this voice was like, no, just be here now. And man, I, I, it's a movie I got to make. But I spent three days being in the moment, and magical things happen, including meeting Martin Scorsese, flying off to Europe. I mean, I just like had a crazy three-day adventure and some of it's not pg but it was incredible and i learned and and ever since then whenever i get really stressed out i remember that lesson which is like just be this moment right now it's perfect it's hard to to... even even perfect in its complicatedness yeah yeah but also hard thing is happening yeah i mean this is gonna podcast gonna turn into a philosophical thing but like if you totally relax yourself and listen to your body and deal with all the things that are making you anxious right now. So maybe it's that you have to loosen up your neck or whatever. But get rid of all the other stresses that you're feeling and just be still and almost meditate. And then as you're meditating, like, oh, but I, I have this itch. Well, then scratch the itch or whatever or quiet the voices. But eventually you can get to a place where you can be quiet. And then there's this little tiny voice inside of you that starts to talk that tells you what you kind of really should do next. Just next, not forever, but like 
maybe, and then eat. So I want to eat something. Then you eat it really slowly and meditatively. And you just slow everything down. Just start being very present. Yeah. And it's magic. It's, and, then, and then all of a sudden you start getting this kind of power, this energy. And you can put your mind to something and do it. And it's like, but it's all like chopping it down into bite-sized moments. Yeah, yeah. And not getting overwhelmed not by the whole. Yeah, we spend so much time like, oh, I have so many things. And you're, how many, even today, like this is a great example of me not being in the moment all day today. Just rushing around, putting out fires all day. Yeah. If just, if we could, I mean, that's so, I know that that's the truth. Yeah. I don't always live by it, but I learned that on and, that, and, that encounter. And it's yours to get back to that. I try to get back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing you as a as a friend and a person, but also getting to be on set with you or or in your studio, it's contagious. Mm-hmm. It's infectious. Your enthusiasm for the art of telling stories, whether it's a commercial, an industrial, mm-hmm. or you know a big fancy splashy mm-hmm. movie, it's just so much fun. And yeah. I feel like it's an incredible thing to know someone who has no cynicism. And and it, at least in the world of, this is a podcast, you can't see his face. He agrees to disagree. Um, all right, before I let you go to do one million things, um, you know it's coming. First of all, I hope you'll come on again because we've just scratched the surface. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I've embarrassed you a hundred times. Mm. There's probably 20 podcasts where I shout out to you or mention you um, with so much gratitude. Oh, I'm so happy for, for you. this and no, for I'm your so, friendship. I love that you're doing that. I do too, yeah. because of you. But is there a little known fact that you can share? There is. Okay, go for Mike. The story is that I met the love of my life, Erin Patterson, when I was shooting my prom date's wedding. I was the I my I didn't have a lot of money. I was a film student, so my wedding gift was I'll make a wedding video for you. And this is like early on in my wedding video career. So the moment that I meet my wife, I have on video of me going around the table with the mic, like we're gonna say something for the bride and groom. And so I, ha- I have the moment of meeting my, my wife on video. Because she shouted, she's a guest. And she's gorgeous. And you, she, you, right. I think you've seen it. She's so beautiful. Like so, I fell in love with her in that instant through a video camera. That's what I want to know. Are you like going yes, around I'm the hovering, table? Yes, I'm hovering on her. And You're like, anything I, more you want to say? Yes. And then it's like Cinderella the rest of the night. I ask her to dance, which is totally inappropriate for the right. wedding guy. But she danced with me. But then I turn around and she's gone. Apparently her grandmother had gotten sick and she had to take her home and she like disappeared. But you were like, there's a shoe. Yeah. And if I can go through the shoe. entire village. Well, there was a video file, and I showed my prom date. Former prom date. I'm like, who is this girl? Oh, that's my like kind of cousin. And so she knew that I was in like had fallen head over heels. And so she invited her to the premiere of my NYU thesis film. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Wow. She came and was like, oh, you're not a video. You're not a wedding videographer. You actually know how to make films. And I made the best student film in America. And she you came did. to that screening. You did. I guess. Yeah. Me and Pisha Princess Dale. Grace agree. <laughs> um, Mike Hanzanero, thank Alana you for Levine. being on the show. This was so much fun. Thank you. This has been a thrill. A-OK. One more thing. I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.